This morning's scripture reading is from John chapter 7, verses 45 to 52. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to John chapter 7 uh, and verse 45. If you don't have a Bible with you, then you can find this passage on the pew Bible that's on the rack in front of you on page 1058. Now, context is uh, important when you're reading any passage of, of Scripture, but it's particularly important when you come to a passage that we're going to, to read now because you need to understand what exactly is, is happening in order for it to, to make sense. And, of course, I'd encourage you to, to go back and read all of John chapter 7. We've been studying this fall, uh, John, John chapter 7. But, but just it, quickly, it's important to know that if you just turn back to verse um, 34... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, good. Just just turn back to uh, to the to just just before you you'll see that in verse uh, oh, 32, uh, the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus teach in the temple courts had sent along with the chief priests temple guards to arrest Jesus. They they had sent him out to arrest him. Now that'll 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 become important in a second, right? That's that's the context for what we're going to. To start reading. So go back to verse 45 and listen as we read God's word. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This is God's word. Let's pray. Let's ask him to bless our time studying it. Our Father, we are thankful that you give us your word. Uh, We're thankful that we are able to see ourselves in it and that we learn both of you and ourselves as we study. And so we pray that you would help us this morning to do just that, to see reflected in this text maybe something of ourselves, something that would lead us to a deeper and closer relationship with you. Lord, each and every one of us come into this place with concerns and worries and joys, and we pray that you would filter all of those things through your word, that your Holy Spirit would perfectly speak to each of us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So the reason that we're spending all this time, six weeks basically this fall, September, and the, and the first part of October, looking at John chapters 7 and 8 is because it's in those chapters that Jesus specifically and very clearly goes through a discussion, a debate even, about who he is, his identity. And that really is the critical foundational question of Christianity. Who is this Jesus? And so in this passage, what's interesting is we don't have Jesus speaking anymore. I mean, he'll speak again, of, of course, but, but, in, but in, the, in the current debate, the, the, the current group of discussions that's happening in, in John chapter 7, Jesus' um, discussions with his disciples originally, and then as he traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, his declarations in the, in the temple and his teaching, all of that is over. And what we're left with are some reactions to it. So Jesus is, is done talking, but what we see are three reactions to what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was saying that I think can act as a mirror 
as we examine ourselves and approach this question about the identity of Jesus. There's three parties in this, in this text that we just read, three different parties that are, in, that are in play, all of which have different reactions. There is, of course, the guards, the temple guards that were sent to arrest Jesus. There are the, the Pharisees, and then there is Nicodemus. Those are the players, and let's see how each of them react to Jesus and what he's been, been doing. Now, first, the guards. Look at verses 45 and, and 46 again. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. Now, like we said back in, back in verse 32, we, there's a group, this, this temple guard that was sent to arrest Jesus. They had an order to do something, to arrest Jesus and to bring him back to, 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 to them. And it doesn't seem, at least from what we can see in verse 32, it doesn't seem that there was a whole lot of discretion that they were given in applying the order. In other words, they weren't asked to go out, assess the situation, and if they deemed it expedient, arrest Jesus. Nor were they asked to, to go out and evaluate his teaching, and if they deemed it heretical, arrest Jesus. They were just told to go and arrest Jesus, but they didn't. Now, before we get into, into why not, let, let's just review who these guys were. These were, these were the temple guards. and So they were, they were religiously trained Levites, who served essentially as the security detail for the, the temple area. Now, they were certainly armed. They were, they were, they were, so they were soldiers. They, were, they had a certain amount of, certainly relative to their peers, a certain amount of toughness that, that came along with that. But, they were, but what's important to note, they were not just some sort of dis, disinterested observer in the whole debate that was, was happening. They had an intellectual interest in what was going on. They had a theological interest in what was happening. Because this upstart teacher named Jesus was making claims about God who, however much they may have misunderstood at the time, the, the religious leaders, who God was, they nonetheless, these, these leaders and these temple guards, nonetheless would have been very interested. It was their job to defend the reputation of, of God in the, in the temple area. Now, why didn't they then arrest him like they were told to do so? Well, it could have been that they were afraid of the crowds. Right? These were, they were not highly disciplined, not as highly disciplined as the Roman legionnaires would have been. And they certainly wouldn't have been as ruthless as a, a mercenary soldier or army would have been. And so they, they might not have been as, as quick to escalate to, to violence and to force, even in the face of the, of the crowd. But what's interesting is that that isn't the reason that they give to the chief priests and to the Pharisees when they go back to them. Right? They could have made something up. They, they could have said, look, look, we know, we know what the order was, but the situation out there on the ground, I mean, it was tense. And when we observed the crowds and, then we, and, we, and we, we thought that it was just much too unstable to, to arrest Jesus, it could have caused a riot. And then you know what would have happened. The Romans would have come in. They would have put it down. They would have you know, put martial law in Jerusalem. We wouldn't want, want that. I want, we wanted, to, we wanted to, to protect you, the chief priests and the Pharisees, and, and so we, we made a judgment call and we didn't arrest him. They could have said that. And that would have been plausible. Even if it was a, even if it was a lie, it would have been exactly the lie that you would have expected them to, to tell. But that's not what they said. When they're asked, why didn't you bring him in, they respond by saying, no one ever spoke the way this man does. No one ever spoke the way this man does. And, and the stress of that phrase, the way that it's constructed, and the, and the underlying connotation of the way that he spoke, the, the stress is on the, that they meant not so much the content of what he was seeing, the way that this man speaks. It's not so much the content. It's the, it's the manner in which he's saying it. 
Right? Presumably, they were in their position. They were around the temple courts all the time. They were used to people coming in, making claims, making speeches, you know, even maybe even claiming to be the, the Messiah. But there was something different, not, not maybe about the content, but certainly about the manner in which they were saying it. And this is very consistent with what other people recognized about Jesus, too. Mark chapter 1, verse 27, you'll see that the, the crowds make this comment. They're listening to Jesus teach, and they're amazed, and they say, what is this? They're talking to each other. What is this? It's a new teaching and a teaching with authority. And I think that's exactly it. Right, that's the difference. Jesus taught with an authority that was different than what they were used to. See, every other religious teacher that they would have heard would have been teaching with a reference to authority that was outside of themselves. And yet here comes Jesus speaking as which he actually is his own self-authenticating authority. <laughs> he, he's pointing to himself. He is speaking as the authority. No one ever spoke like this man does. And little do they know that there is no other man who could possibly, because there is no other man who has ever been like Jesus. They were right. Now, the Pharisees also somewhat get it right when they ask in verse 47, you mean he has deceived you also? Now, they don't necessarily understand that they're getting it right, but, but the, the scholar J.C. Ryle points this out. It, not, not, that, not that Jesus was deceiving them in the sense of lying to them, but, but Ryle points out this word deceived means literally to, to lead on a different path, to, to carry one in a different direction. And, of course, one can do that with a lie, can't he? Carry someone in a, in a different direction, which, of course, is what the Pharisees were talking about. But ironically, right, they were sent to carry off Jesus, weren't they? They were sent to carry off Jesus in one direction, to arrest him. And what has Jesus done? <laughs> the Pharisees are right. <laughs> He's carrying them off. <laughs> He's carrying them off in a totally different direction. See, they were sent to arrest Jesus, and ironically, what seems to have happened is Jesus has arrested them. Now, instructively for us, how did, how did this happen? How did this, how did this come about? Right? When they came, when they went to take Jesus captive, how did he end up captivating them. Well, they spent time with him. It's not particularly complicated to see. By some estimations, it had been at least several days since the guards went out, but, but when they went out and, and, and now when they're coming and reporting back. And during that time, presumably they were watching, they were listening, they were, they were being around him, they were observing, and what they observed was that, was that something was different. Now, we don't need to overstate the case for this to be instructive to us. We know there's no indication that the guards had become followers of, of Jesus, that they even believed that he was the Messiah. Maybe some did. Well, we can't know that. We can't know that from the text. And, 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 and maybe, even in not knowing that, that's the biggest encouragement here because, because what it's saying to us is if you're hostile to Jesus, if you're coming at him, you know, figuratively speaking, with swords and spears, if that's you, can I just encourage you, based on what we see here, to spend a little bit of time with him first? Sheath the sword and, and, and just spend some time around him. And, and if you're close to someone who has, you know, a family member, a, a friend perhaps, a, a, a close relationship, who, who figuratively speaking has swords drawn when it comes to, to Jesus, may I just encourage you that perhaps the best form of relational evangelism is not their friendship with you and their proximity to you, but the, but the, but the proximity that they can have to Jesus, the more time that they can spend around him. That's the reason why our, our, our Faith Explored course that we, we do twice a year, why it uses the life of Jesus as the primary source material to understand Christianity's answers to the big questions of life. 
It's because so often what people think they know about Jesus is not actually Jesus. And so, so what we need to do is like the, like the temple guards, just spend time around him. And I think we'll find when we do that that he's captivating. That doesn't mean that, that, that one would agree with him on every point. Of course not. You wouldn't expect to. doesn't mean that he wouldn't challenge us if we spend time around him. Of course he would. If he were the Son of God, as he's claiming, you would expect that there would be many areas where he might challenge us. However, however, at the same time as he is challenging, and I'm sure the temple guards were challenged in what they, in what they heard, he's also welcoming. There's something different. There's something that they can't get to fit about him as they spend time around him. No one ever spoke the way this man does. He's challenging and he's welcoming at the exact same time. He's arresting them. Now, of course, however honest and transparent the guards' explanation of their failure to arrest Jesus might be, the Pharisees don't particularly like it. They're the second party that we're, we're looking at here. First response to Jesus, of course, is the, is the guards. And, and they, though coming to arrest Jesus, have found themselves somewhat arrested by him. But the second response comes from the Pharisees. Now, we already saw how their reaction to the guards' excuse was to charge them with being deceived. And it's quite obvious as you listen to them that they are most certainly anti-Jesus. They don't believe in him. They don't like him. They don't want to believe him. They want him gone. They make that pretty pretty clear. But what I want us to notice is the, the difference in the way that they approach their opposition to, to Jesus. Do you see the arrogance that sort of undergirds their, their disagreement with him? Do you see it? Not only do they disagree with Jesus, but they won't even enter into a serious discussion about him, about, about the claims. Because look again at the way that they respond to the, to the guards. Look how they argue the, their point in verses 48 and 49. Say, Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Now, first of all, the claim that no other Pharisee believed in Jesus, that would prove to be false fairly soon because John records in chapter 12 that some of the Pharisees, in fact, did begin to follow Jesus. And even if it were true that none of them did at this particular moment, you can see how the Pharisees are belittling the, the guards because they don't, in their response to the guards, they don't, actually, they don't actually criticize the guards for being bad police officers. Or you're a bad guard. No, what they actually are criticizing is, is you're a bad Jew. Do you even understand they just lump them in with the, with, 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 with the common folk. It's just a, like, you call yourself a Levite? <laughs> Have you even consulted your more learned brothers, thus the Pharisees, regarding the matter? Is there even one scholar of the law who agrees with you? What place do you have to challenge something like this? And then he effectively lumps them in with the, with the stupid and the cursed mob that knows nothing of the law, he says. Now, that's pretty harsh. It's harsh because this mob that they're referring to, these were their own people. These were the Jewish people. These were the common Jewish people of the, of the, uh, of, of the city of Jerusalem. And the Pharisees had a phrase for these common folk. They called them the, the people of the land. Now, it's actually a phrase from Ezekiel 40, 22. That is, it's not initially intended to be derogatory, but it's, it, it had begun by this time to be used in that kind of way. And so when the Pharisees would refer to the people of the land, they said it with a sneer. That's exactly how they, they meant it. Oh, the common folk. Right? And, and, the, and the knock against these people, these people of the land, is that they didn't obey and they didn't know the Jewish law like the Pharisees did, which, of course, was probably true. Right? The Pharisees had taken, the, had taken the, the, the parsing and the applying and the adding to uh, the law to an entirely new level. 
And, and so the average, I mean, to the point that the average common person of the land or whatever would just, they just throw up their hands in frustration and, 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 and give up, which, which would open the door, quite rightly, for the charge of being a lawbreaker in, in some instances, and hence the feeling of justification that the Pharisees must felt in pronouncing a, a curse on them. That's how the Pharisees respond to the, the guards. Now, look how they respond to Nicodemus, because it's in very much the same condescending kind of way. We'll see in a moment that Nicodemus tries to raise with the, with the council a, 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 just a, a small, minor procedural point. Right? Nothing, nothing, and immediately he's shot down. Again, they don't engage him on the merits of the question that he asked. They, they, they attack him personally. Do you see how they call him a Galilean? Now, they probably know he isn't from Galilee, but, they but that's just how he's acting. He's acting like a stupid Galilean. They go ad hominem. They attack the guy. They don't attack his argument. They attack him. And obviously, they have a thing about Galilee because it's come up several times now that they don't like Galilee. But even if their point was that, their point could have been that, there, that no prophet ever had come from Galilee, which well, they would be just flat wrong if that were true. Jonah most clearly came from Galilee. Probably you know, Elijah, Nahum, there's others that, that, that could have originated from Galilee as well. So they, were just, they would, would have just been wrong on that. But if you, even if you give them the benefit of the doubt, that maybe they weren't talking about any prophet coming from Galilee. Maybe they're talking about the prophet. Maybe they're saying that the Messiah wasn't, wasn't, wasn't to come from Galilee. Even that, though, is, an, is a pretty arrogant statement without going and investigating whether or not, in fact, it's true. Or they presume something about Jesus that they just, don't, they just don't know as a fact. If they looked at it, they would have seen that, that, that he had been born in Bethlehem. This debate had come up before, that he was in the line of, of King David if they had done their research, and that he would have been the rightful the rightful heir, but they didn't even bother to investigate it. And I think there's the lesson for us. The magnitude of what Jesus is claiming here about himself, about God, the magnitude of those claims warrant a real investigation and a real hearing. And I want you to see the difference between the way the, the guards responded to those claims by spending time around Jesus and the way the Pharisees responded to those claims by effectively not caring at all just keeping themselves at a, at a distance here. Now, at the end of the day, we don't know how many, like I said, of the guards might have become followers of Jesus, but at least they took the time to be in his presence and to, and to listen. But the Pharisees, they, they were in, in full resistance here, in full rebellion, right, to the point that they didn't even want to have their questions answered. They didn't even want to have their assumptions challenged. And, and it's, it's in this place, this place of resisting Jesus, re resisting arrest, if you will, where we actually are in the most danger, right? Because the resistance actually, over time, will function to harden us. H have you ever noticed when you're with, with chewing gum that the longer you chew it, the harder it gets? Right? You think it should be the opposite, that the more that you work it with your teeth or whatever, it should get, it should get softer, but that's not the way that it works. Right? The longer you chew, the harder it gets. The flavor completely dissolves away, and, and you forget even why you're chewing. That's what happens to the heart that resists Jesus. After a while, the constant resistance doesn't work to soften. The constant resistance actually makes the heart harder. And slowly, the distinctive flavor of Jesus begins to fade from memory. So you have the response of the guards. You have the response of the Pharisees. And finally, you see the response of, of Nicodemus. And with Nicodemus, something different is happening. With Nicodemus, you see clearly something going on with his, with his heart. He's not just captivated by Jesus like the guards. And, 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 he's, and he's not in, clearly in resistance in the same kind of way as the, 
as the Pharisees, I think we see here evidence of the impact of Jesus on his heart. So if you're taking notes and you want to be cute about it, right, with the guards, you have this sort of reversal of arrest. With, with the Pharisees, you have the resistance of arrest. And with Nicodemus, where something is happening in his heart, you have, wait for it, cardiac arrest. Because something is clearly happening here. And here's how I think you can tell. But for, for, let's remind ourselves, who is this, who is this Nicodemus? Right? This was the guy, John tells us, verse 50, he was the guy who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of his own number, meaning one of the Pharisees, had gone to Jesus earlier. And, and John, what John is doing is he's referencing his readers back to chapter 3 because there Nicodemus is introduced to us as a man of the Pharisees, a member of the Jew, Jewish ruling council. And it's in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus comes to Jesus because he wants to learn more about Jesus' claims. And he wasn't just comfortable like observing Jesus from afar. He wants to go and talk directly to Jesus. And so he and Jesus have a late night chat on some pretty heavy topics. And some of the most profound topics that one can, can talk about. Now, some of our community groups looked at this passage last week. And if, and if you haven't, go back, go back and read John chapter, chapter 3. They talk about, they talk, the two of them, Jesus and Nicodemus talk about how truth is known and how it's perceived, about, about how we're saved by God through the the work of his son. We, they talk about the nature of spiritual rebirth and what that, what that means, talking about how, how salvation is, is accomplished through the, uh, through the work of Jesus and, and, and how it's received by believing in him. It's pretty heavy, pretty heavy stuff. This is a pretty, you know, heavy theological discussion. And, and it just made me, and just, let me just draw a parenthesis around here. I, you have to, if you go back and read John chapter 3 and then keep reading into John chapter 4, and just you just have to marvel at Jesus. You talk about someone who is captivating. In John chapter 3, what you have is Jesus showing himself to be fully capable of having a robust, in-depth, theological conversation with one of the most educated, prominent, and respected religious leaders in the preeminent city of the region, and that is Jerusalem. That's in John chapter 3. And then you just keep reading, and you see Jesus, John chapter 4, and he'll be having a conversation at a well outside of a small desert town with a poor, uneducated, immoral Samaritan woman. You see the contrast? Isn't that awesome? The way Jesus is able to just, just seamlessly move from one conversation to another and in both of them be equally captivating. Now, but back to Nicodemus, because John, John brings Nicodemus back to us in John chapter 7 for, for a reason. It, because in John chapter 3, remember, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's afraid of being seen with Jesus, afraid of what it might have meant for his career. But here, we see Jesus actually speaking out. And it's ironic that he, he raises his voice to, to ask this question just after the Pharisees sneer that no Pharisee could possibly believe in, in, in Jesus. Now, to be fair, again, the only thing that he's really doing here is raising a, a procedural question. Right? He, he's not defending Jesus' claims. He's He's not specifically implying that he is, in fact, right in what he's, what he's claiming. He's only simply saying that, that it really isn't lawful to condemn someone who hasn't yet been heard on the charge that you're, you're making. So we don't know for certain at this point whether Nicodemus is actually yet to be a, a, a converted follower of, of Jesus. But we do know that he's taking a risk in speaking up. And that's proven by the reaction that he gets when he, when he says what he says. The other thing that we have that points us to the fact 
that there is something going on in Nicodemus's heart that's progressing him from coming to Jesus at night to now speaking out in the presence of the Jewish ruling council is the fact that we know where Nicodemus is ultimately going. Because he comes back to us again in John chapter 19. And at that point, he's one of only two men who were mentioned, only two, who were willing to publicly identify themselves with Jesus at, at, at the end of his life. The other was Joseph of Arimathea, of course. And, and, and John says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus who had remained quiet because he was afraid of the Jews. Now, that's exactly the, the, same, the same ones that Nicodemus had feared. But now, by John chapter 19, these two fearful men have become bold. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, says, goes, goes to the Roman governor, goes to Pontius Pilate, and asks for Jesus' body after his death. And Nicodemus is with him. And together... They take care of Jesus' body. Joseph contributes his own, his own prearranged burial plot. <laughs> and he, had done the, he had done the planning. He, he, had had the, he, had, he says, no, I, I'm going I'm to give my tomb to Jesus. And, and Nicodemus goes out and buys 75 pounds of, of spices in order to properly care for the body of Jesus. Now, think about how incredibly bold this is to, to do. They had a tremendous amount of risk in doing this. Jesus was a condemned man. He had been executed for treason against Rome. The crowds that had provided some buffer, they were completely gone. They had, they had abandoned him. They had turned against Jesus. And now it's at this point that these two men choose to publicly identify themselves with Jesus. Now what changed? What changed their fear to boldness? I can only think it was the fact that they continued to follow Jesus and they followed him all the way to the cross. And it finally clicked what Jesus had been saying. That, that this Jesus who, who spoke about dying so that those who believed in him would live, that this Jesus who, in speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, pointed to his death on the cross saying that he must be lifted up in order for salvation to be received, that, that this Jesus in his death was really the only pathway to, to spiritual birth, it clicked that this Jesus was really right. And Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus in the, in the middle of the night in John chapter 3, is now about as public as you can possibly be in his allegiance to him. See, this is important because knowing Jesus' claims, taking time to hear him out, that's where you start. That's important. That's what the guards did. But spending time around him, it can give you a flavor of who Jesus is, but it has to eventually lead to more than that. More than just understanding even and I say, even, even more than agreeing to the identity of Jesus. Remember, at one point, there were thousands and thousands of people who were flocking to hear Jesus teach. And almost all of them ran away when it became clear that either Jesus was not who they expected him to be, or they began to realize that aligning themselves with him might carry great personal risk. And so they fled. So here's what it means for us then. We see, it in, we see it in Nicodemus. We see it in the progression that Nicodemus makes from, from wanting to know Jesus to actually beginning to question to now full-on proclaiming his allegiance to him. Right? Three, there's three groups. There's three stages. We need to know Jesus, we need to yield to Jesus, and we need to be bold for Jesus. Now, the first group, are you in this group? Are you ignorant of Jesus? I don't mean that in a an insulting kind of a way. I just simply mean ignorant in the sense of lacking knowledge. Are you unaware of Jesus? Is that you? Well, if so, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here because we talk a lot about Jesus here, and, you, and, and that's without apology. 
And if you spend time here, you will, you will, very rightly, we believe, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be spending time with Jesus. And Jesus makes some pretty bold claims, and we want to help you to get to, to know them, regardless of your background, regardless of your history, regardless of your, of your story. Jesus, I'm absolutely confident, can speak to you. The man who can relate to a prominent intellectual moral leader, on the one hand, and a poor, disregarded, immoral peasant, on the other, can absolutely relate to you. That's first. You need to know Jesus. You aren't aware of Jesus' claims? Get to know him. But don't stay there. The second group, do you already know plenty about Jesus? Is that, is that you? Do you know, you know plenty about Jesus? Is that you? If, if, if that's you, then I'm glad you're here because the question to you is the same question that it would have been to Nicodemus or to the, or to the guards. Will you now yield to him? Having spent time around him, having learned about him, will you now bow to him? I mean, take the step beyond the intellectual understanding and yield your heart. Stop chewing the gum before it turns into a rock. Cardiac arrest. Submit your heart to the authority of Jesus. Now, finally, third group. Are you a committed follower of Jesus? Now, this might be the largest, percentage-wise, group of people in, in this room. And sometimes we just stop, though. We stop, and when we know about Jesus, we need to submit ourselves to him. But do you see, is there any way in which you're challenged by Nicodemus, particularly as we see where Nicodemus goes? You know about Jesus. You've yielded to Jesus. And if that's so, I'm glad you're here because, like me, we need to be challenged to live with the boldness of Nicodemus. Now, it's very dangerous to cite a political figure in any kind of illustration or example in today's climate because it's immediately polarizing. But I actually think that the fact that it's potentially polarizing is, is part of the point in this case. Earlier this week, the Washington Post decided to publish a 1982 handwritten letter from then-President Ronald Reagan to his dying father-in-law, Loyal Davis. And in the letter, Reagan makes a, a respectful but bold case for believing in Jesus to a man, his father-in-law, whom he loved, but he knew had been an avowed atheist. Reagan writes, he says, Loyal, I know of your feeling, your doubt, but could I just impose on you a little longer as he makes the transition in the, in, in the letter? And you can almost get the feeling that, as you read it, that he, he's not completely comfortable. He's a little bit nervous about it. He respects his father-in-law a great deal. And his father-in-law was, was, not just a, was not just close from a family standpoint. He knows that this was a, a man who was a, a man of great learning. He was a prominent neurologist. And he, was, he, he might be the kind that would be prone, like the Pharisees, to sort of scoff at the common folk. Yet Reagan then proceeds to, to explain how Jesus fulfilled the specific promise, promises and prophecies of the, of the Old Testament. He echoes the, the reasoning of C.S. Lewis that, that Kevin quoted a, a few weeks ago. Reagan writes that, that either Jesus was who he said he was, or he was the greatest faker and charlatan who ever lived. And then he states quite plainly what he calls the miracle of Jesus. Reagan writes, the miracle is that a young man of 30 years, without credentials as a scholar or a priest began preaching on street corners. He owned nothing but the clothes on his back, and he didn't travel beyond a circle of less than 100 miles. He did this for only three years and then was executed as a common criminal. But for 2,000 years, he has had more impact on the world than all the teachers, scientists, emperors, generals, and admirals who have ever lived all put together. Now, the point of me sharing this is not 
so much to make a point of any kind about Reagan's politics, nor to even get into a debate about whether or not all of his politics are aligned with, with, with Christian teaching on all, on all counts. The point is to consider what would have compelled Reagan to do this, to write to his father-in-law in this way, risking reputation with a man he greatly respected so that he could explain Jesus to him at a moment where he knew he had his greatest need. And why would he do it behind the scenes? The letter was written over 35 years ago. The only reason why it was, was found, it was, it, was found in a, it was tucked in a box of papers in the Reagan Presidential Library, and the Washington Post columnist, uh, Karen Tumulty, was doing research on Reagan, and she discovered the letter. And she asked the library for permission to, to publish it, and so the Washington Post, to their great credit, did. And it was the first time that this letter, this private letter, had been seen probably by anyone except the person who wrote it, the person who received it, and the person who shoved it in the, in the file. And maybe it's that kind of humble boldness that we need today. Right? Maybe, just maybe, Reagan chose not to make the letter public, not to make a show of it, because he knew that, in his, that his political role might actually alienate more people than attract them to, to the gospel. But the letter itself shows that that it doesn't mean that he wasn't very bold. And we all know that talking to people who are closest to us can sometimes be much more difficult than standing up in front of hundreds, thousands of people. Reagan, in many ways, probably would have been much more comfortable standing in front of millions of people. It's what he had done his whole life on screen and as president of the United States. But in this case, writing a letter to an individual with whom you have a close relationship, may actually have been the most bold thing that he could have possibly done. Which brings us back to Nicodemus. If you're a follower of Jesus, then we need to be challenged to live with that kind of of boldness. Is there someone like Loyal Davis in in your life, someone that you need to talk to about, about Jesus? And look at this example. With Nicodemus, we need to follow Jesus all the way to the cross and then consider what Jesus did there on the cross and allow what he did there on the cross to compel us to go out and to tell others about it. Not arrogantly like the Pharisees would have done with their knowledge, humbly like Nicodemus. Do you see his bold declaration of public allegiance to Jesus? It wasn't a blog post or a rant on Facebook. His bold proclamation of his allegiance to Jesus was his willingness to dress and care for a dead body as nightfall approached, and no one else in the world cared. It means that we proclaim the truth of Jesus' identity, in, yes, in front of people, but behind the scenes as well, where it actually might require an even greater boldness, because no one is watching. A boldness that ultimately can only come when we yield ourselves to Jesus, when we are arrested by him. Let's pray. Our Father, it can be a scary thing sometimes to look into your word as a mirror. Uh, Because when we see ourselves, we see things that are challenging, that are troubling. Areas that should change. And yet, Lord, there is something about doing that with you that is oddly comforting at the very same time. You challenge us. You challenge us to the core to consider who we are, to consider our allegiance, and yet you welcome us. By the grace of Jesus Christ, you confront us in our sin and offer us forgiveness. And so, Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in that. That we would come to you with with either a a prayer of seeking (laughs) or a prayer of yielding 
or some of us a prayer to renew, to be renewed in our following and our bold proclamation of who you are. Lord, we desire to see you lifted up, to be crowned as the king you are, the king who died for us. We come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.